We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 28 for our evening Bible study. After our prayer time, we uh, almost always have a scripture study, and that's what we're doing tonight. We're continuing our study in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. I'm uh, spending quite a lot of time here, slowing down quite a bit. This is a narrative section of scripture, but it has a little bit of a different quality than the narration that we've seen, you know, telling about the Lord's resurrection and, uh, you know, his burial and his death. I'm working backwards and in trials and all of that, the miracles that he did and his teachings and private teaching to the disciples. And all that's full of lessons and very important for us. And I've argued that the book of Matthew is entirely applicable to us in the church. It's not just for another age, another time, another dispensation. There are tremendous teachings here uh, for us in the church. And after all, I mean, one way we can know that for sure is the book of Matthew was written in the church age, wasn't it? <laughs> in fact, it was written maybe 60 AD. I'll give a number. I'm not sure exactly right off, but we're well into the church, a generation in to the church after its birth. And so he's writing to churches. He wants us to know about the king who came and what he did for us. And so we looked at the Great Commission in verse 18. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given uh, to me in heaven and on earth. And we saw that that was foundational to the Great Commission. That was the foundation of the Great Commission. And when I say foundational, I mean like, foundational in terms of this, the expression of the command, the um, giving of the direct, uh, directives that the Lord uh, gave. I'm not talking about foundational in the sense of the gospel message, or let me say it this way, the work of Jesus Christ is obviously foundational. The blood of Christ is foundational to everything, to our salvation and all of that. But given that, now we have to take that and propagated to other people. And the foundation of that is the authority of Jesus to tell us to take that message and bring it to other people. That's the sense in which I use that word foundation. So all authority. And we looked at the lordship of Christ. We looked at some uh, verses that uh, kind of are very clear about the command nature of the gospel, duty, faith. We saw the implications of Jesus' authority uh, that are foundational to the Great Commission. One of those is uh, the fact that we've been given a stewardship, a responsibility to uh, prop propagate the gospel. It's not just the great suggestion. It's the great commission. It's the great order of things uh, that, that he has done for uh, given to us. Um, and it's a necessary duty for those that believe. Let me just emphasize that again. The Great Commission lays a responsibility upon us. But in that we are sharing the gospel with the world, that gospel is laying a responsibility upon unbelievers. 
People that are not believers, not Christians, have a, res- have a responsibility to respond properly to the Christian message. There's, they can't just say, no, I'm opting out of that. I, I, I'm not going to deal with that. Uh, God can go fly a kite somewhere. I'm on my own. I'm doing my own thing. No, that's not how it works, friends. And secondly, we looked at the assignment of the Great Commission, and we're in this section now. The, we saw the foundation of the Great Commission, now the assignment of it. And the first part of the assignment is go, therefore, go, therefore. And we looked at what going means and, um, and what it doesn't mean. Um, and then we saw that the church did that with, the early church did that. I mean, if you look in the book of Acts, it virtually gives the history of the church fulfilling the Great Commission, doesn't it? They were to start in Jerusalem and go to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth Acts 1.11 is always a, a kind of a humorous verse. You know, why do you guys stand there looking up into heaven? It's time to go back to Jerusalem, be endued with power from on high, and then you're going to go out and you're going to do this work. Now, it took the church a little while. By the way, I think that's another note that we should, I didn't mention, but, you know, it was Acts uh, 2 when the church was born, Jer- Jerusalem-centric preaching in chapter 3, 4, 5, the selection of the deacons in chapter 6 because the church had ballooned in size. Chapter 7, which Jansen just read about Stephen um, confronting the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, the leaders of Israel. And then that persecution began to launch the disciples outward to Samaria, Judea, broader Judea and Samaria, and eventually to the Gentiles in Caesarea, to Ethiopia, uh, and then Paul, of course, in Acts 13 through 21, all the way to Europe. And um, so it's really a, 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 an expression of the, the fulfillment of the Great Commission, at least the early years of it. So uh, the going command. The second, the second part of the assignment is to make disciples, to make disciples. And... Um, we're to make disciples of all the nations. You know, of all people, Christians have been, should be, must be, the most um, ethnically accepting people in the world. The Lord Jesus said, you go and make disciples of all the ethnos, of all the, not just the 195 nations, but as I tried to explain last Sunday morning, the 7,000 language groups, of which thousands have no portion of God's word in them, and thousands of them have very few, if any, believers in them at all. Um, it's a tragic kind of situation. But the, the, uh, the scripture is very clear that we are to go to all of them without regard for any, I mean, without regard for anything. I mean, in a sense, just go to all of them and, uh, and give them the gospel. Uh, we should be loving all of these people and concerned for them. We made a mention, too, of how that kind of relates to us here. Uh, we said 370,000 souls live in Washtenaw County, 115 and change in Ann Arbor itself, and, uh, you know, 10 to 20 or 30,000 in the outlying cities, you could say the suburbs of Ann Arbor, if there is such a thing. People don't usually think of Chelsea and Dexter and Celine and all those in Ypsilanti as suburbs of Ann Arbor, but we'll just say it that way. 
uh, for sake of explaining, 370,000 souls, and many of those are from China and Korea and Philippines and the Middle East and Russia and all kinds of places where you can find, uh, you, you see people coming to us for education and for work and other things. So um, we then emphasize that making disciples is not a task that is done in a moment. Um, you and I have friends, perhaps, who are in their 70s or 80s or even 90s, if they're Christians. They're still being made in, as disciples. They're still, it's a still work in progress. And um, the start of that work is that we introduce people to Jesus. We, uh, you know, kind of simple in a way, if you think about it. Um, you know, if, if I come, if I'm with Naomi and I'm coming to somebody, maybe I know them already, but they don't know my wife yet, I say, hey, let me introduce you to my wife, Naomi, or let me introduce you, Naomi, to so-and-so. And I begin the connection between them by giving their names. Well, how about if we say, let me introduce you to Jesus, my very best friend, um, the one who gave himself for me. Let me tell you about him. Well, that's the beginnings of, of making a disciple, and hopefully you'll do that and experience the joy of introducing someone to Jesus. But the Lord said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And here we are in the third step of that. This is tonight. We're still in the assignment of the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So the third step after going and making disciples is baptizing them. Now, let me say a few things about baptizing. In fact, I'm going to say them, uh, I think I'm going to try to say them out of order in my notes because I think it might make a little bit more sense. What is the relationship between going and making disciples and baptizing and teaching? We said the main verb is to make disciples. Going is associated with that. You have to go to them to make disciples. I mean, you can't do it by osmosis, by ESP. There is no such thing really or anything like that. You have to to communicate with people. You have to put the word of God into their hand, whatever. Um, What is the relationship? Well, the the two ideas at the end, the the two words, baptizing and teaching, are commonly understood to be their well, they're participles in English. You know what? Teaching, baptizing, they end in ing, and so they're participle forms. They're actually, I mean, in English, they could be that other, that other dreaded grammatical term for a word that ends in ing, a gerund. Do you remember those? I taught on those last week in Greek. How, how about it, Daniel? Are you with it? Gerunds and participles, don't you just love it? No, not at all. I never understood gerunds and participles in school. I just like, boy, if it ends in ing, I'm going to guess, is it a gerund or a participle? <laughs> a gerund is, a, is an ing word acting in place of a noun. Just remember that. It's an acting in, in a, as, a, as a noun in the sentence, okay? So it can function as a subject or a direct object or something. But, um, it, or, yeah, actually. So uh, that's all technical stuff to say these are participles, but what they function as is an explanation of the means 
by which you make disciples. You make disciples by baptizing and by teaching them. Let me explain it a little bit because it's kind of confusing a little bit. Disciples are not complete at conversion. Okay. Now, somebody say, well, that doesn't sound very right. Um, let me say it this way to be clear. New Christians are disciples. They are disciples for sure. But disciples are not fast food. Okay? They are made over a longer uh, time period by longer acting means than just getting them to believe. Yes, getting to believe, but I think sometimes we might have made a mistake by thinking, okay, if I make a disciple, then like that one's done, move on to the next one. That idea has made baptism optional and it's made teaching optional and then it's made church participation church attendance, church ministry, optional. Because we focus on, okay, well, they're saved, so good enough. The, the scriptures are teaching that disciples are made by a longer-acting process, two-part process, baptizing and teaching them. Baptism and teaching are absolute requirements. There's no such thing as disciples made without baptism. Okay? and without teaching in their local church. Let me say that again. There's no such thing as a disciple who is, is not progressed and made through the process of baptism and teaching in the local church. If you're not baptizing and teaching, then you are not really making disciples. Okay. If you're not baptizing and teaching, you are not really making disciples. Um, I don't know if I've made that clear. I don't want to confuse the matter and say that somebody has to get baptized in order to be a disciple. To be an obedient disciple, they have to. In order to be a progressing disciple, they have to. Um, But they don't have to. And we have to leave room for the obvious special cases. I mean, the guy, the thief on the cross, could not be baptized. He wasn't less saved. He just didn't have very much time left. (laughs) You know, his time was very short. Or um, oh, somebody who's physically unable to be baptized. I saw an email. Did you see that email about that older fellow that was baptized? I can't remember if it was from David Flink or somebody. I, I tried to find it again today. I read it a day or two ago, and now it's lost in all the piles of things to read. But 80, 80 or 82-year-old fellow got saved and wanted to be baptized. There he is in his wheelchair, getting ready to go down into the baptismal tank with his oxygen in his nose, wanting to testify to his faith in Christ. That's real Christianity right there. Some of you remember the the, uh, story about uh, Jean Balakovich being baptized? Were you present when she was baptized? You ever hear that story? You remember Mrs. B, right? Imagine baptizing her with her, uh, uh, what do you call those, braces and all that stuff that she had because of her post-polio. Yeah. There was only one baptism that I, I declined to do, and that was our sister Nancy because she was so frail. I thought we would break her back for sure. The, the um, good news is, that she had sort of forgotten 
she was already baptized publicly by immersion before when she was a young person. So she didn't really need to be baptized. So that was a sad kind of situation. You hate to have to say, no, Nancy, I can't do that. But she's with the Lord now and she understands. But um, I just had concerns that she was going to get hurt because she was so frail. Um, In any case, uh, baptizing. Uh, It's interesting that if a person is a disciple, that means they're a follower. And followers, what do followers do? How about that? That's a rocket scientist over here, Grandma Banks says. Followers follow. That's right. If Jesus commands them to do something, guess what they'll do? They'll do it. Said another way, you cannot be a follower of Jesus without following Jesus. The first step in following, and, and one of outsized importance, I think, compared to the brief amount of time it takes, is to be baptized in his obedience, in, in obedience to his command. In this passage, I testify often, look, there's no sacramental value in baptism. It doesn't like infuse you with grace from heaven and all of a sudden you become, you know, a glowing, bright personality, uh, spiritually with a halo over your head and all of that. But I think there's something about baptism. When you decide, I am going to publicly testify of my faith, I'm going to say out loud that I'm a Christian, I'm going to follow the Lord's command that something happens in your spiritual life. And it's like this, you know, you just, you just start to grow. Why? Because now you're saying like in John 7, 17, if any man wills to do his will, he'll know the doctrine, whether it's mine. You, you begin to cooperate with God and, and work with him, and it just works so much better than, you know, being dragged by your feet or kicking against the goads, as Paul was told by the Lord Jesus. But anyway, um, this, the baptism, too, is kind of a gate. I call it a gating function. It's, it's like a gate through which you pass. It's the, one of the earliest things as a believer you do. And when you pass through that gate, why then you show, well, I'm serious about the faith and I, I can participate in the Lord's table. I mean, how can you... How can you participate in the Lord's table if you refuse to be baptized? Like, that's kind of a sin, right? We're not supposed to be partaking in an unworthy manner. But in any case, um, you know, it's a gating function to the rest of the Christian life and, and disciplines. Um, so, we, we, you know, like taking, taking the Lord's table without being baptized is not a situation envisioned in any positive way in the Scriptures. <clears throat> It's often at this moment, what I'll call a watershed moment, pun intended, that the reality of your faith is tested. You know, new believer, have you been baptized? No. Are you willing to be baptized? Well, eh. are you you really following Christ or not? I mean, if you are, then you don't really have an option in the matter. You just need to be baptized by immersion in water to testify your faith in Christ. If their faith is real, they will be baptized. If they aren't baptized, if they balk somehow and avoid it, then I'm afraid to say that I wouldn't be able to give them a confidence about their faith uh, because they're not willing to be obedient. 
living faith obeys, doesn't it? Living faith does works. In fact, an unbaptized Christian would have been considered by Peter, James, John, the rest of the disciples, an unbaptized Christian would have been considered by them an oxymoron. You know what an oxymoron is? It's a severe inconsistency. Um, the new authority in grammar. Grammarly. Have you ever watched those advertisements for Grammarly? It says, an oxymoron is a figure of speech that combines contradictory words with opposing meanings. Like unbaptized people are not Christians, but Christians are baptized people. Like, obviously, when you first become a Christian, those first moments you're not baptized, but you're heading in that direction of being baptized. Unbaptized, if that's a persistent state, that's heading in this direction. Baptized heading in this direction. Christian heading in this direction. So it's an oxymoron to have an unbaptized Christian. You can't meld these two ideas together to form a workable alloy. It's a severe inconsistency, as we said. And we, you know, we already talked about edge cases like the thief on the cross and so on. Uh, people who are disabled and una- unable to get out. I mean, how do you baptize the poor person in an iron lung? You know, certainly can't do it by immersion in water. Well, usually. I guess some of those people in iron lungs, can they get out of there, some of them, for a while during the day or something, and then they have to go back in there? If you Look up on YouTube sometime. There's a, um, a documentary about a woman who still is this day living in an iron lung with, I think it was post-polio. That's how she lives. Um, anyway, it's not a... It's just how they're accustomed to now for all those years to help them breathe. But anyway, um, it's this close association of baptism with initial faith that gets people turned around in their theology. When we come to talk about something like this, people get, you know, can say, well, Pastor Matt, you're saying you've got to be baptized in order to be saved. No, I explicitly said that's not the case. But I'm saying if you are saved, you will be baptized. There is a direct line between the one to the other. Uh, And so this close association, especially in time, in in church history, people profess faith. Perhaps moments later, they're baptized or within days or within that week until the next Sunday when church service comes, they get baptized. That's all the longer they waited. So they're so closely associated that they should always be like conjoined twins, faith, baptism, conjoined twins. Therefore, um, some people do say, wrongly, but they do say, well, you've got to be, believe and be baptized. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of your sins. And some Christian sects do do that. They say, look, if you're not baptized, your sins haven't been washed away. Your sins haven't been remitted. Baptismal remission or baptismal regeneration are two views that some uh, hold. But the Bible's insistence is that unbelief is what condemns a person and that salvation is not of work. So these things show that baptism cannot be a work required to obtain salvation, but it is a first natural expression of faith. Romans 10.9. Remember that again says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. 
Well, that's what you do when you come to faith in Christ. But there's not much better place than in your baptism testimony to also give mouth to that faith that you have uh, expressed and believed. Now, the meaning of baptism. When the Lord Jesus says, uh, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what does he mean by baptism? Well, he meant the common meaning of baptize, which in Greek is to what? Yep, Dip, immerse, dunk, whatever, submerge in water. That's why when they baptized, they were in places where there was what much water. John the Baptist was near uh, was in Anon, A-E-N-O-N, near Salim, not Saline, but Salim, S-A-L-I-M, where there was much water, and he was baptizing there. So in these in this message and these notes that I have, which I will publish on the church website eventually once I get them done, I'm almost done, but not quite. Uh, I will not further defend the obvious fact that baptism means to immerse. I think that uh, if, you know, getting into a whole debate about the meaning of baptism is, is in the end, it's wrangling about words. It's striving about words to no profit. It's not really uh, necessary. It's not helpful. It means what it means. It doesn't mean sprinkle, or otherwise they, Jesus would have said sprinkle them. It doesn't mean pouring, otherwise Jesus would have said pouring. It means baptizing. It means dipping. It means immersing into water. And if someone insists on a different definition of the word baptism, then I, I just simply ask them, you know, uh, brother or sister, if you insist, Fellowship Bible Church is not the church for you. If you want to be baptized, you have your babies baptized or whatever, there are Presbyterian churches that do that. We don't do that. And the fact that you believe differently than I do doesn't necessitate me to change my beliefs or soften them to make it so that you feel comfortable coming to this church. Your attendance is not that important that we are going to bend or change our beliefs. Okay, now that sounds maybe harsh, dogmatic, whatever. We're just trying to be, um, trying to be faithful to the Lord, that's all. It's not uh, haughty, it's not proud, it's just trying to be faithful to what the Lord has said. That's all. So... Um, now, a couple other comments here. Besides a few examples of early baptisms in the Bible, what I call startup or bootstrap baptisms, okay? Uh, what am I talking about when I talk about a startup baptism? Philip is on the road. He meets the Ethiopian eunuch. There's a few people there. There's no church there. The guy says, look, I believe in Jesus. Can I be baptized? Well, of course. I mean, what are we going to do? Say No. <laughs> Uh, be baptized and send him on his way. Well, there was one believer there, Philip at least, and there were some others who were the attendants. This official most certainly didn't, he wasn't traveling on his own. He had a driver and he had servants and whatever, whatever. So, um, you know, he had witnesses there for his baptism. So that's okay. And then he had to go on his way to Ethiopia and start a new church. I'm sure that happened there. Um, but anyway, you have some like that. I mean, if if... Two, if, if a handful of people were on an island, they found a Bible that one of them believed, another one believed, well, they could baptize each other and start the church, and okay, fine. But the normal, normal situation, because God's work is centered on the church, the book of Acts evidences that, manifests that, examples that, 
the normal case is that a Christian's testimony is made clear amongst a group of fellow believers as they are baptized, just like we do here on Sunday mornings when we have a baptism service. If the profession of faith is not made clear or can't be made clear, then the person is not a candidate for baptism because baptism is only for believing people. And the witnesses that witness the baptism are rejoicing with the converted soul and observing the glory of God in the life of that person. We had a man here who testified of the God's great work in his life when uh, we had a baptism, I think two baptisms ago, and he just rejoiced to hear how God has worked. Now, I wish I would still see that brother here. I think Jansen might know who I'm speaking about, but, um, you know, observe the work of God in the life. And the people out in the chairs out there, I'm, I'm standing over to the side or whatever, and this brother's telling his story, which I've heard and I've read his testimony on paper. I'm saying, man, look at this, what God has done. You can't hide that from the church. I mean, that's, that's grounds for rejoicing. I mean, when the guy got saved, the angels in heaven rejoiced. Why can't we rejoice too? <laughs> yeah, we do. And uh, to see the conversion, to see this candidate for baptism. Well, and, and I, you know, some may say, well, what do you, why are you so church-centered on this idea of baptism? I can't we just, you know, can't, I can't go baptize myself or something, you know. Well, we know from the example and evident pattern of the book of Acts, as well as the early church history, that they had uh, baptisms and testimonies were given at these baptisms. The church knew that these people were, they're getting up there and they're saying, I believe in Christ. I'm a, I'm a different person. And... Today, it's even more necessary because there's so many variations of belief. Like, you know, well, what do you believe about baptism itself? Do you believe that it saves you? Well, we don't want to baptize you if you think that is what saves you. I won't baptize somebody if they think that. I'll go sit with them in the baptism class and teach them upright so they know and go have them study it and answer questions and that sort of thing. Um, all of that. So we want to make sure that it's, it's done properly. And, and as I told you, I think when we had the young people, this last baptism with several young people, I sat with them all. We wrote their testimonies out. We edited them. You know, not that I changed them or made them say different things, but I wanted to prompt them to, you know, what do you believe? What are you saying here? Be clear. Because, and I told them this, I want you to be able to take this this document, this testimony, and the fact that you were baptized, and these notes, so that when you're 20, you can look back and say, now, what did I believe when I was 12? And what did I say? Oh, yeah, that's right. And I did, in good conscience, believe that. Because, you know, down the line, after they've had some bumps in the road and so on, and don't tell me they're not going to have some bumps in the road, they can look back and, 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 and see that recognize, yes, our pastor and our church did teach us very clearly about what baptism is all about. I believe that, and that's why I was baptized. Concerning the order of baptism, um, I just say, you know, like in Acts 2.41, it says, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. First you receive it, the word, then you are baptized. Um, same with like Acts 16, the Philippian jailer, he believed with all his household, and then they were baptized. It's 
always very clear in the scriptures. Um, in Samaria, they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Christ, and then both men and women were baptized. So that covers the order of the events. As to the symbolism of baptism, the symbolism, this is the last point I have for us tonight, the symbolism of baptism. What is this ritual, and why is it so meaningful? Well, there's a number of things. First of all, it shows in pictorial form our association with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Going down into the water, coming up out of the water, fitting pictures of dying and rising with Christ. It also shows the connection of the Christian with the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. By the way... That's a very unique being that has one name in three persons, isn't it? The name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not the names of them. The name. The, the one triune deity who exists in three marvelous persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Anyway, um, we talk about baptism having to do with association, baptism having to do with um, connection. What I really intend to convey is a more common theological term, identification. Baptism has to do with identification. So when uh, John the Baptist was baptizing, what were the people identifying with in his baptism? Anybody have an idea? Say that. She's got it. The rocket scientist got it again, you know. <laughs> Repentance. John the Baptist said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The people were baptized, showing that they were identifying with his message, saying, that's me. I need repentance. I need to be cleansed of my sins. Uh, in, in our Christian baptism, this is different than John's baptism, we are identified with Jesus and his church. We're saying, I'm switching my loyalties from whatever to him, and I'm in his church now. I'm part of his body. We are identified with God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then there is a, fur a further symbolism of baptism, so not only with a, a association of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and our identification with God and, and identification with the message of Jesus in his church, but also... There's a symbolism of cleansing. Now, of course, water touching the exterior of your body doesn't cleanse you from internal sin, does it? It cleanses you from filth, physical dirt, physical dirt, maybe with some extra soap, you know, on hand to help, but um, or degreaser if you're a you know a mechanic like my dad was. I mean, his hands were always dirty. You know, except for Sunday mornings, he would make sure they were really clean, get all the dirt out on their fingernails and all that sort of stuff. Um, that was a pattern that he had. But water does not cleanse the heart from sin, but it is a symbol, this water. The symbolism of baptism is of cleansing. The baptism pictures the cleansing which happens for us when the Spirit of God applies the work of Christ and we are washed from our sins. Do you remember when Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born of water and the Spirit? 
And Nicodemus is like, huh? And Jesus said, hey, now he didn't say, go back to Ezekiel 36, but Nicodemus should have known. Go back to Ezekiel 36 and see that you should be washed with clean water and that, you should, and that God should put his spirit within you. You need to be born of water and the spirit. That's what that means. So you need to be born of water and regenerated by the Spirit of God. And baptism does a wonderful job of picturing our cleansing from sin. Can you just picture with me? This isn't what happens. You get cleansed when you believe, but just picture baptism. You dunk down into the water, and as you come back up, all the sheets of water coming off you, just carrying symbolically carrying away the sins that were in your heart. That happened when you were born again, not at your baptism. But that's a picture of what happened. Try to make that clear, but it's a wonderful picture, I think. Finally, uh, on this you know, business of symbolism of baptism, do you know in some churches, what do baptism candidates wear? A robe. What color? Why? Because they've already been cleansed from sin before they walk into the waters of baptism. They're already wearing a white robe. They don't get the white robe after they're baptized, do they? They get it. They're wearing it before. We're not big on vestments, you know, and liturgy and all of that because the Bible doesn't, the Bible doesn't say anything about how you're dressed when you're getting baptized. That's not the concern. We're just concerned that it's modest, that's all, because it gets wet. But... Uh, since the scripture doesn't mention it, we don't make a big deal about it. Sometimes our candidates have worn a robe or, or something else like that. But I thought it was just interesting that, that the, even the symbolism that some churches use of vestments indicates that the person's already been clean, like the saints who come with the Lord in Revelation, clothed in white and linen, uh, fine linen, white and clean, whatever the King James says uh, that I had in my memory banks there. Um, picturing their purity. That's what the Lord has done for us. He's purified us, and baptism pictures that, and he wants us to go through that religious picture uh, to honor him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us this time in the Word again uh, today. Thank you for the Great Commission, the foundational element of the authority of Christ, the assignment of it. We're going to come to the assurance of it, and the resources for it in our future messages. And we thank you in advance for those too. I pray a special blessing on your people here tonight. Those watching online, although they cannot physically attend or they are not physically attending, we are at least grateful that they have, I pray, received some level of edification by this meeting tonight. And I'm praying that you will work in their lives. Each one of us, Lord, has issues problems, sins, shortcomings, areas in which we need to grow in wisdom and grace. And I pray that you would do your work in each person's life. In Jesus' name, amen.